A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue if you dare. As darkness falls upon Agoraphobia 2020, and we find ourselves turning in the widening gyre, our incantations have been spoken, our sacrifices have been made, the auguries have been taken, the livers and entrails have been examined. We have inspected the omens, the prodigies, and the portents. The spirits are indeed pleased, and so we make this final offering as a piece de resistance to round out this year's morbid merriment. To start, we present the agoraphobia premiere of Brie and Fry, the hosts of the Pontifacts podcast, who share with us an entertaining Ecumenical Tale of Terror. Hello, I'm Fry from Pontifex. And I'm Brie, and today I want to tell you about Gilbert of Aurillac, or Pope Sylvester II. Known as the Science Pope, he was a preeminent intellectual, mathematician, astrologer, and philosopher but he's also known as the Necromancer Pope, who foretold the future and made a pact with the devil. Ooh, it's about to get spooky. <laughs> Gilbert of Aurillac was born in France in 946 and would become the first French Pope in 999. But before that, Gilbert studied under the Bishop of Addo outside of Barcelona in Spain, on many subjects outside of church life. He studied astrology, astronomy, mathematics and philosophy, and utilized scientific tools not found in the West, like hydraulic organs, armillary spheres, the abacus, and the astrolabe. 
He was likely one of the first to introduce Hindu-Arabic numerals and decimals to Western mathematics, and as one of the most intellectual men of the era, he served as a tutor for future emperors and popes, and a teacher in the Cathedral of Rheims. Gilbert was also incredibly active politically before his papacy, getting involved in many imperial affairs, which led to conflict with the nobility, and the papacy, and even a temporary excommunication. However, this did not stop him from being continually promoted to the abbot of Bobbio, and then the archbishop of Ravenna, and then elected as pope. But history remembers him for darker things. According to the legends, while studying mathematics and astronomy in Spain, the future pope also dedicated himself to the practicing of the black arts, learning from Saracen wizards, learning tricks and spells to increase his wealth and his power, and ultimately win him the papacy. How? Tell me more about this creepy pope. William of Malmesbury tells us that Gibert constructed a brazen head, which is a robotic automaton crafted by wizards, which would prophetically answer questions posed to it with a yes or a no answer. He did this with the help of a secret dark book that he had stolen from Arab sorcerers. And when he stole the book, he had been pursued by its owners, but had escaped by hanging underneath a bridge, making himself invisible between the earthly plains. Wow, what? He had spells to just hang between the worlds, apparently. I guess. But this was just one venue of Joubert's desire for prognostication. For 12th century historian Walter Mapp also alleges that Joubert made a pact with the devil, or at least a devil. Joubert's pact was with a demoness called Meridiana, who is described as a woman of unheard beauty seated on a large soaking carpet having before her a huge heap of money. Was the carpet wet or is there such a thing as a soaking carpet? It seems as if it was a wet carpet. Okay. So Meridiana either promised the papacy to Joubert, or he won it from her in a game of dice, and then made a pact with her to be told the future, to increase his power and his wealth. I can't get over this wet carpet. Soaking carpet, yes. Why is she just on there? <laughs> is this some sort of whap metaphor that I'm not getting? Perhaps it is. It is a demoness. She could also be a succubus. It's true. So now he's won the papacy from her. And as Pope, every night he would consult with Meridiana. And Walter Mapp says, Every night she who possessed full knowledge of the past instructed him what he was to do day by day. Within short time, no one was his equal. So he would use these instructions and his necromantic skill to uncover long-forgotten pagan treasures to make himself outrageously rich and to leave no project unfinished. But the sorcerer pope was not just concerned with amassing wealth and power. He was also concerned with his death. But Mariniana assured him that he would only die if he read mass in Jerusalem. Don't go there. For then if you do, the devil would come for him and take his soul. Cool, just stay out of Jerusalem. That seems easy. The Pope then decided never to visit Jerusalem. See, we're doing great on this whole, like... Because if this was a horror movie, he'd be like, I'm gonna go straight to Jerusalem and live there. Well, he decides he's not going to go, and he's going to live forever. But soon after, the Pope gave Mass in the Church of Santa Croce in Rome. 
fatally forgetting that the full name of the church was Santa Croce in Jerusalem. Oh, mistakes. An account from Cardinal Baino tells us, Forgetful that the church of Santa Croce was known as in Jerusalem, he said mass in it. Immediately after, he died a most horrible death, ordering with his last breath that his hands and tongues, with which by sacrificing to demons he had dishonored God, to be cut to pieces. We get a little bit more from a later Dominican friar, Martin the Pole, who says, Confessing his sins in public, he ordered that they cut off his limbs, with which he had made homage to the devil, and that they place his dead trunk in a cart and bury him wherever the beast that hauled the cart stopped. Now, in truth, it's believed that Pope Sylvester II died of poison, so even if the devils did not take him, he was murdered. He was buried in the Lateran Palace with an epitaph that read, This place will yield to the sound of the last trumpet, the limbs of the buried Pope Sylvester II at the advent of the Lord. But this is not the end of the story. For it is said that the tomb of Sylvester II was not restful, and he would foretell the death of a pope. Quote, By sound of knocking bones and sweating of the marble, his tomb presages the death of any pope. Now, unfortunately, this tomb was destroyed by fire in 1308. But when the remains of Pope Sylvester were rediscovered in the 17th century, Cardinal Cesare Rasponi, who found the body, noted that the body was not cut into pieces as the legends would have us believe. But things still got creepy. As we quote from him, The corpse of Sylvester II was found in a marble sarcophagus, 12 feet below the surface. The body was entire and clad in pontifical robes. The arms were crossed on the breast, the head crowned with the tiara. It fell into dust at the touch of our hands. The tiara? No, the body. Thank God. <laughs> His entire body just completely disintegrated into dust the minute that they touched him. Oh no, he got Thanos-snapped. He got Thanos-snapped. And while a pleasant odor filled the air- What the f I know! Owing to the rare substances, no less, in which it had been embalmed. Whatever he had been embalmed with smelled beautiful as he was Thanos-snapped away. Not formaldehyde? No, it's the turn of the first millennium. Nothing was saved but a silver cross and the signet ring. So he just completely vanished. And thus finally rested the remains of the necromantic sorcerer, science pope, Sylvester II. But who knows what it says for his spirit? He also appears in a current book series, Deborah Harkness's All Souls trilogy, as a vampire. Oh, she would. I haven't read any of those. They just, like, what I skimmed looked like someone tried to use bigger words to write Twilight. It pretty much reads exactly that way. What I've read so far of her depiction of Sylvester II seems very much that way. And that brings us to the end of the spooky story of our necromantic, packed-with-the-devil Pope. Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween! Happy spoofs! Boopy and creepy. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Now, finally, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. Pray tell what rough beast, its hour come at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born? Oh, why, tis I, High Priest of Agoraphobia, Thomas Daly, from the American Biography Podcast, who now presents my humble supplication and bids you adieu by way of an Edgar Allan Poe deep cut called Bernice. Misery is manifold. The wretchedness of earth is multiform. Overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow, its hues are as various as the hues of that arch, as distinct too, yet as intimately blended. How is it that from beauty I have derived a type of unloveliness, from the covenant of peace a simile of sorrow? But as in ethics evil is a consequence of good, so, in fact, out of joy is sorrow born. Either the memory of past bliss is the anguish of today, or the agonies which are have their origin in the ecstasies which might have been. My baptismal name is Agaeus, that of my family I will not mention. Yet there are no towers in the land more time-honored than my gloomy, gray, hereditary halls. Our line has been called a race of visionaries, and in many striking particulars, in the character of the family mansion, in the frescoes of the chief saloon, in the tapestries of the dormitories, in the chiseling of some buttress in the armory, but more especially in the gallery of antique paintings, in the fashion of the library chamber, and lastly, in the very peculiar nature of the library's contents. There is more than sufficient evidence to warrant that belief. The recollection of my earliest years are connected with that chamber and with its volumes 
of which later I will say no more. Here died my mother, herein was I born, but it is mere idleness to say that I had not lived before, that the soul has no previous existence. Let us not argue the matter. Convinced myself, I seek not to convince. There is, however, a remembrance of aerial forms, of spiritual and meaning eyes, of sounds, musical yet sad, a remembrance which will not be excluded, a memory like a shadow, vague, variable, indefinite, unsteady, and like a shadow too, in the impossibility of my getting rid of it while the sunlight of my reason shall exist. In that chamber I was born, thus awakening from the long night of what seemed but was not non-entity, at once into the very regions of fairyland, into a palace of imagination, into the wild dominions of monastic thought and erudition. It is not singular that I gazed around me with a startled and ardent eye, that I loitered away from my boyhood in books and dissipated my youth in reverie, but it is singular that as years rolled away, and the noon of manhood found me still in the mansion of my fathers. It is wonderful what stagnation there fell upon the springs of my life, wonderful how total an inversion took place in the chamber of my commonest thought. The realities of the world affected me as visions, and as visions only, while the wild ideas of the land of dreams became in turn not the material of my everyday existence, but in the very deed, that existence utterly and solely in itself. Bernice and I were cousins, and we grew up together in my paternal halls. Yet differently we grew, I ill of health and buried in gloom, she agile, graceful, and overflowing with energy. Hers the ramble on the hillside, Mine the studies of the cloister. I, living within my own heart and addicted body and soul to the most intense and painful meditation. She, roaming carelessly through life, with no thought of the shadows in her path or the silent flight of the raven-winged hours. Bernice. Bernice. I call upon her name. Bernice. Bernice. And from the gray ruins of memory a thousand tumultuous recollections are startled at the sound. Ah, vividly is her image before me now, as in the early days of her light-heartedness and joy. Oh, gorgeous yet fantastic beauty. Oh, sylph amid the shrubberies of Arnheim. Oh, naiad among its fountains. And then, then... All this mystery and terror, and a tale which should not be told. Disease, a fatal disease, fell like the simoon upon her frame. And even while I gazed upon her, the spirit of change swept over her, pervading her mind, her habits, and her character. And in a manner, the most subtle and terrible, disturbing even the identity of her person. Alas! The destroyer came and went, and the victim, where is she? I knew her not, or knew her no longer as Bernice. 
Among the numerous trains of maladies superinduced by the fatal and primary one which affected a revolution of so horrible a kind in the moral and physical being of my cousin may be mentioned as the most distressing and obstinate in its nature. A species of epilepsy not unfrequently terminating in trance itself. Trance very nearly resembling positive dissolution and from which her manner of recovery was in most instances startlingly abrupt. In the meantime, my own disease, for I have been told that I should call it by no other appellation, my own disease then grew rapidly upon me and assumed finally a monomaniac character of a novel and extraordinary form, hourly and momently gaining vigor, and at length obtaining over me the most incomprehensible ascendancy. This monomania, if I must term it, consisted in a morbid irrationability of those properties of the mind in metaphysical science termed the attentive. It is more than probable that I am not understood, but I fear indeed that it is in no manner possible to convey to the mind of the merely general reader an adequate idea of the nervous intensity of interest with which, in my case, the powers of meditation busied and buried themselves in the contemplation of even the most ordinary objects of the universe. To muse for long on wearied hours with my attention riveted to some frivolous device on the margin or in the topography of a book to become absorbed for the better part of a summer's day in a quaint shadow falling aslant upon the tapestry or upon the floor to lose myself for an entire night in watching the steady flame of a lamp or the embers of a fire to dream away whole days over the perfume of a flower to repeat monotonously some common word until the sound by dint of frequent repetition ceased to convey any idea whatever to the mind, to lose all sense of motion and physical existence by means of absolute bodily quiescence, long and obstinately preserved in. Such were a few of the most common and least pernicious vagaries induced by a condition of the mental faculties, not indeed altogether unparalleled, but certainly bidding defiance to anything like analysis or explanation. Yet let me not be misapprehended. The undue, earnest, and morbid attention thus excited by objects in their own nature frivolous must not be confounded in character with the ruminating propensity common to all mankind, and more especially indulged in by persons of ardent imagination. It was not even, as might be at first supposed, an extreme condition or exaggeration of such propensity, but primarily and essentially distinct and different. In the one instance, the dreamer or enthusiast being interested by an object usually not frivolous, imperceptibly loses sight of this object, in a wilderness of deductions and suggestions issuing therefrom, until, at the conclusion of a daydream, often replete with luxury, he finds the incitamentum, or first cause of his musings, entirely vanished and forgotten. In my case, the primary object was invariably frivolous, 
although assuming, through the medium of my distempered vision, a refracted and unreal importance. Few deductions, if any, were made, and those few pertinaciously returning in upon the original object as a center. The meditations were never pleasurable, and at the termination of the reverie, the first cause, so far from being out of sight, had attained the supernaturally exaggerated interest which was the prevailing feature of the disease. In a word, the powers of mind more particularly exercised were, with me, as I have said before, the attentive, and are, with the daydreamer, the speculative. My books at this epoch, if they did not actually serve to irritate the disorder, partook, it will be perceived, largely, in their imaginative and inconsequential nature, of the characteristic qualities of the disorder itself. I well remember, among others, the trees of the noble Italian Coelius Secundus Curio on the great extent of God's blessed kingdom, St. Augustine's great work, The City of God, and Tertullian's The Flesh of Christ, in which the paradoxical sentence, And the Son of God died, it is credible, because it is unfitting, and he was buried and rose again, it is certain, because it is impossible occupied my undivided time for many weeks of laborious and fruitless investigation. Thus it will appear that shaken from its balance only by trivial things, my reason bore resemblance to that ocean crag spoken by Ptolemy Hephaestion, which steadily resisting the attacks of human violence and the fierce or fury of the waters and the winds, trembled only to the touch of the flower called asphodel. And although... To a careless thinker, it might appear a matter beyond doubt that the alteration produced by her unhappy malady in the moral condition of Bernice would afford me many objects for the exercise of that intense and abnormal meditation whose nature I have been at some trouble in explaining, yet such was not in any degree the case. In the lucid intervals of my infirmity, her calamity indeed gave me pain, and taking deeply to heart that total wreck of her fair and gentle life, I did not fall to ponder, frequently and bitterly, upon the wonder-working means by which so strange a revolution had been so suddenly brought to pass. But these reflections partook not of the idiosyncrasy of my disease, and were such as would have occurred under similar circumstances to the ordinary mass of mankind. True to its own character, my disorder reveled in the less important but more startling changes wrought in the physical frame of Bernice, in the singular and most appalling distortion of her personal identity. During the brightest days of her unparalleled beauty, most surely I had never loved her. In the strange anomaly of my existence, feelings with me had never been of the heart, and my passions always were of the mind. Through the gray of the early morning, among the trellised shadows of the forest at noonday, and in the silence of my library at night, she had flitted by my eyes, and I had seen her, not as a living and breathing Bernice, but as the Bernice of a dream, not as a being of the earth, earthy, but as the abstraction of such a being, not as a thing to admire, but to analyze, not as an object of love, but as a theme of the most abstruse, although desultory, speculation. And now, now I shudder in her presence, and grew pale at her approach, yet bitterly lamenting her fallen and desolate condition. I called to mind that she had loved me long, and in an evil moment I spoke to her of marriage. 
At a length the period of our nuptials was approaching, when, upon an afternoon in the winter of the year, one of those unseasonably warm, calm, and misty days, which are the nurse of the beautiful Halcyon, I sat, and sat as I thought alone, in the inner apartment of the library, but uplifting my eyes I saw that Bernice stood before me. Was it my own excited imagination, or the misty influence of the atmosphere, or the uncertain twilight of the chamber, or the grey draperies which fell around her figure, that caused in it so vacillating and indistinct an outline, I could not tell. She spoke no word, and I, not for worlds could I have uttered a syllable. An icy chill ran through my frame. A sense of insufferable anxiety oppressed me. A consuming curiosity pervaded my soul, and sinking back upon my chair, I remained for some time breathless and motionless, with my eyes riveted upon her person. Alas, its emaciation was excessive, and not one vestige of the former being lurked in any single line of the contour. My burning glances at length fell upon her face. The forehead was high and very pale and singularly placid, and the once jetty hair fell partially over it, and overshadowed the hollow temples with innumerable ringlets, now of a vivid yellow, and jarring, discordantly, in their fantastic character, with the reigning melancholy of the countenance. The eyes were lifeless and lusterless, and seemingly pupilless, and I shrank involuntarily from her glassy stare to the contemplation of the thin and shrunken lips. They parted, and in a smile of peculiar meaning, the teeth of the changed Bernice disclosed themselves slowly to my view. Would to God that I had never beheld them, or that, having done so, I had died. The shutting of a door disturbed me, and looking up, I found that my cousin had departed the chamber, but from the disordered chamber of my brain had not, alas, departed, and would not be driven away the white and ghastly spectrum of the teeth. Not a speck on their surface, not a shade on their enamel, not an indenture in their edges. But what that period of her smile had sufficed to brand in upon my memory, I saw them now even more unequivocally than I beheld them then. The teeth, the teeth, the teeth, the teeth, the teeth, the teeth, the teeth. they were here, and there, and everywhere, invisibly and palpably before me, long, narrow, and excessively white, with her pale lips writhing around them, as in the very moment of their first terrible development. Then came the full fury of my monomania, and I struggled in vain against the strange and irresistible influence. In the multiplied objects of the external world I had no thoughts but for the teeth. For these I longed with a frenzied desire. All other matters and all different interests became absorbed in their single contemplation. They, they alone were present to the mental eye, and they in their sole individuality became the essence of my mental life. I held them in every light. I turned them in every attitude. I surveyed their characteristics. I dwelt upon their peculiarities. I pondered upon their confirmation. I mused upon the alteration in their nature. 
I shuddered as I assigned to them an imagination, a sensitive and sentient power, and even when unassisted by the lips, a capability of moral expression. Of Mademoiselle Soleil, it has been well said, all her steps were sentiments, and of Bernice I more seriously believed, all her teeth were ideas. Ideas! ideas. Here's the idiotic thought that destroyed me. Ideas. Therefore, it was that I coveted them so madly. I felt that their possession could alone ever restore me to peace in giving me back to reason. And the evening closed in upon me thus, and then the darkness came, and tarried, and went, and the day again dawned, and the mists of a second night were now gathering around, and I still sat motionless, in that solitary room, and still I sat buried in meditation, and still the phantasma of the teeth maintained its terrible ascendancy, as, with the most vivid, hideous distinctness, it floated about amid the changing lights and shadows of the chamber. At length there broke in upon my dreams a cry as of horror and dismay, and thereunto, after a pause, succeeded the sound of troubled voices, intermingled with many low moanings of sorrow or of pain. I arose from my seat and throwing open one of the doors of the library, saw standing out in the antechamber a servant maiden, all in tears, who told me that Bernice was no more. She had been seized with epilepsy in the early morning, and now, at the closing in of the night, the grave was ready for its tenant, and all the preparations for the burial were completed. I found myself sitting in the library, and again sitting there alone. It seemed that I had newly awakened from a confused and excited dream. I knew that it was now midnight, and I was well aware that since the setting of the sun, Bernice had been interred. But of that dreary period which intervened, I had no positive, at least no definite comprehension. Yet its memory was replete with horror. Horror more horrible from being vague, and terror more terrible from ambiguity. It was a fearful page in the record of my existence, written all over with dim and hideous and unintelligible recollections. I strived to decipher them, but in vain while ever and anon, like the spirit of a departed sound, the shrill and piercing shriek of a female voice seemed to be ringing in my ears. I had done a deed. What was it? I asked myself the question aloud, and the whispering echoes of the chamber answered me. What was it? On the table beside me burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box. It was of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently before, for it was the property of the family physician. But how came it here upon my table, and why did I shudder in regarding it? These things were in no manner to be accounted for, and my eyes at length dropped to the open pages of a book, and to a sentence underscored therein. The words were the singular but simple ones of the poet Eben Zayat. My companion said to me, if I would visit the grave of my friend, I might somewhat alleviate my worries. 
Why then, as I bruised them, did the hairs of my head erect themselves on end, and the blood of my body become congealed within my veins? There came a light tap at the library door, and, pale as the tenant of a tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a voice tremulous, husky, and very low. What said he? Some broken sentences I heard. He told of a wild cry disturbing the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household, of a search in the direction of the sound, and then his tones grew thrillingly distinct as he whispered me of a violated grave, of a disfigured body enshrouded, yet still breathing, still palpitating, still alive. He pointed to garments. They were muddy and clotted with gore. I spoke not, and he took me gently by the hand. It was indented with the impress of human nails. He directed my attention to some object against the wall. I looked at it for some minutes. It was a spade. With a shriek, I bounded to the table and grasped the box that lay upon it. But I could not force it open, and in my tremor it slipped from my hands and fell heavily and burst into pieces. And from it, with a rattling sound, there rolled out some instruments of dental surgery, intermingled with thirty-two small, white, and ivory-looking substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>